Welcome to Agriculture in North Carolina. We call it Ag and NC, and this program is all about our largest industry in the state, agriculture. On today's program, we're talking about ewes. Raising sheep is the protein of conversation on today's show, and I'm a big lamb chop fan. Cameron Meyerly is the Director of Sustainability for the American Lamb Board, and he is our guest on this week's program. Ag and NC is made possible by Ag Carolina Farm Credit, First Choice Insurance Partners, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. Find links to those folks on our website, agandnc.com. We start this week's show as we do each week with the headlines, and for that, let me introduce Jeff Turner, COO of Murphy Family Ventures, member of the North Carolina Board of Ag, and my co-host. Happy 2024, Jeff. Hey, how are you, Dan? It's uh, a new year, and all is going well, I think. We've had a little bit of, little bit of moisture, a little, little cold weather. Yeah, been able to see my breath a couple of days these past few days, so uh, we've got a little cold snap. As a nation, we have not had that cold a winter to this particular point, has played well at the diesel pump. Granted, we are not where we were prior to the in- introduction of clean diesel. Diesel prices down compared to where they have been in the last couple of years. Yeah, they are. Of course, that's a production and consumption. Yeah. Gasoline, we're, what, 260 and change? About there. 280. Two, depends. Two, pre-pandemic levels there it's uh, it's nice to see and, and it's still high relative to where it was three and a half years ago but you know but we had some great interviews over the last couple of weeks one of which we talked on just the increase in the population in north carolina and <laughs> the continued increase in the population of north carolina i actually read a, an article about nc innovation where they're hiring a staff member at each of the Anchor universities in North Carolina will be one at East Carolina University, A&T, UNC, Charlotte, Western Carolina University. They note that North Carolina is the home to the country's largest public university system. That's pretty impressive. Didn't know it. It is. And uh, for what it's worth, I am a newly appointed member to the new NC Innovation Board. Oh, how about that? Didn't know that when I brought it up. Yeah, and things were going so smoothly for them up till then. <laughs> oh, in, in a weak moment, <laughs> I had a call from the speaker's office and was asked a few leading questions, which I responded. And they said, you know what? You'll fit this perfectly. We need for you to serve. So. Cool. We'll look for updates. Well, here we are, 2024, four years since the beginning of the pandemic, certainly not anywhere near that from the effects of the pandemic. We've dealt with inflation. Inflation is slowing down a bit, but the prices are still inflated compared to where they were two years ago, three years ago. As we head into spring planning, number one, risk management's got to be a bigger deal. And number two, if you're looking for spring planning loans, interest rates are just exorbitant. All of the above is true. And talk about inflation today seems to be slowing, but the only way to get back to where we were would be obviously deflation. Now, I don't see any deflation coming. No. But we built in some additional costs three years ago that will never go away. So while we may slow going forward the inflation rate, those previously inflated prices are here to stay. And, and that affects everything we do in farming. Obviously, I mean, inputs, any equipment, all that labor cost is as well as got inflated and it's not going to come down so 
Give me a little history on this. This can't be the first time. Stoddard County, Missouri, a group of poultry farmers filed a lawsuit against Tyson Foods just months after the company shut down the processing plant in southern Missouri. Their point was there was no indication. In fact, they were encouraged to double down and uh, to update some of uh, procedures and some of their buildings as well. Five poultry producers claimed that they uh, were out thousands of dollars and saddled with debt, and Tyson knew that they weren't going to continue with the plant. You know, it's unfortunate, and I can understand the frustration that these folks are having to deal with. If you've been told to go and make improvements to your buildings, all the while the folks who are asking you to make those improvements were at the same time cognizant that the plant's going to go away. That, that's There's obviously at least two sides to every story, so right. we'll see how it plays out. It's, un, it's unfortunate. Have you heard of suits like this before? Oh, right. no, I, I think I think you're going to hear more and more yeah. because, you know, most people look at their relationship with their integrator as a partnership. And, you know, good partners should be talking. And sometimes I think in some of the larger companies and an unintended consequence of the right hand not knowing what the left hand's doing sometimes. So I think we'll see more. I hate it, but I think there'll be more and more situations. Hang on, Jeff. Hang on, everybody. We're going to move forward into the pasture with sheep. Coming up on today's program, Bill Carone Cars in Wallace is the only Chevy GM dealer in Eastern Carolina to be an Ag Pack dealer, which means any farmer who buys a vehicle at Bill Carone is eligible for more than $30,000 in savings on products you already use, likely everything from crop products to tires. Check out the advantages of the Ag Pack program at Bill Carone Cars in Wallace or online. Look them up. BillCaroneGM.com. You're listening to Ag and NC. Thanks to the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. North Carolina's official business development and marketing program for agriculture. More than agriculture. It's got to be NC. Cameron Meyerly is the Director of Sustainability for the American Land Board and joins us. Cameron, I know you're not too long on the job, but you didn't replace anybody. That position was a newly formed position, was it not? It is. Yep, that's a, a new position. Uh, it's been a lot of fun to to work with that group there and really kind of take what they see, their vision of educating producers so that we can fulfill the marketing buzz that they're generating. We can fulfill the demand of lamb uh, here domestically. You know, on this program, on occasion, Jeff and I have to kind of feign ignorance because we want the listeners to uh, get educated along with ourselves. In this particular topic, I don't know about Jeff, but I am about as ignorant as they come other than on the on the consumer side of the fork for lamb products. Jeff, are you uh, uh, good at lamb husbandry? I can honestly say I'm not good at the husbandry side. I have studied it a bit in the past uh, because of meat production. As a consumer, I rather like lamb. So even though I'm partial to pork, by the yeah, way, of course. chicken, but you know, of you know how that goes. Cameron, as a little background, get, give us an idea of where American lamb production used to be, the lamb populace, and where we are. We had a extension event recently, and, and their history started back in like 1810. Um, and I'm not going to go back that far. But when we think about where our sheep numbers used to be, uh, using West Virginia – as an example, in 1900s, there were a million head of merinos just in the state of West Virginia. You'd be hard-pressed to find, find even a handful there now of that specific breed. You know, sheep numbers in general 
for state associations to hit that million mark, it's, you're not going to see it. So we're right about $5 million on the national size, and that number is, is decreasing. However, the demand for lamb or lamb consumption is actually up. Uh, and a lot of that is due to ethnic culture and also millennial preference, you know, eating something that's, that has some flavor that's different than our, than our pork or our poultry, have more adventurous palates uh, in that sense. But uh, currently we're importing right around 60% of our domestically consumed product. We just are not on the production side, not producing enough to fulfill what we as Americans want to consume. At American Land Board, our goal is to try to solve that. Yeah, I know many times I've gone out uh, and uh, enjoyed a wonderful lamb meal. And if, if they say, oh, the lamb's from New Zealand, I go, oh, great, this is fabulous. But the best lamb I've ever had was from Colorado. Are we getting up to the world standard? And what states seem to be the leaders? And where are we in North Carolina? Do you know? don't know the exact number in terms of ranking for North Carolina, but it's not near the top. I will say your your operations are, are growing, number of sheep in the flock, uh, as well as number of flocks that people are raising. But I think our biggest issue when we think about what it takes to provide a product to the American consumer, especially in quantity, we need consistency. And that's something as an industry, uh, we're very diverse in the type of sheep that we run, uh, very diverse in production model. If we look at the swine industry, um, the way we raise pigs here isn't a whole lot different than how you guys raise pigs down there. Compared to sheep and producing lamb, that production model might be very different. And it's not only different from here to North Carolina, but from where I'm at down the road to my neighbor. And so it's very difficult to fill the quantity orders that we have without having the consistency that we need to really push that business forward. With that said, are you suggesting that we need to figure out what is the best breed for mass production, so to speak, or more efficient production? I think most everyone that are growing sheep or lamb are doing it kind of it's just a pasture raise sort of thing. Is there a way to make it more efficient to get volume? You mentioned the pasture system. That's one that's difficult. We're going to see that more in the east, uh, the eastern part of the U.S. We think about traditional lamb, that lamb that you had coming out of Colorado, my guess is it was out of a western range type view and either out of one of those range rams or or even a terminal sire utilizing some some Suffolk genetics, some growth and muscle genetics uh, on those you know, maternal range sheep and came off the mountain out of that operation and then went into a feedlot, finished to 150, 160 pounds. And that would be an example of a product that or production system that is kind of standard, more standard than what we are over in this part of the country. And so a lot of those operations are are in confinement in places like Iowa, Minnesota, where we, where value of land is, is extraordinary. Uh, and we can produce a lot of grain product on that acreage. And, and so we've moved the sheep inside. It looks more like that hog operation uh, than it does our, our traditional, you know, small ruminant sheep operation. 
out on pasture. And so I'm not necessarily advocating that, well, we need to scrap our 100 different breeds and, and find one, but you know, there are certainly those that are leading the way. I think it's more an issue of identifying kind of what that market point looks like and getting education to the producers to say, this is what they need to look like and these are the the traits they need to possess at this weight so that when we hang them next to your neighbors, for example, the carcass is not night and day difference. From a breed standpoint, what is the most healthy, hardy producer out there? Years ago, I looked at putting in some sheep, and I think I thought about Dorper. So Dorpers have really grown in popularity, uh, and that would be a, a hair breed that originated in, in South Africa. Um, there's quite a few of those here in the U.S. today. Uh, we've seen a lot of growth in hair sheep, primarily from the standpoint that we can't get people to, to shear sheep. Our wool has very little value on the market. I'm not saying that it, it has no value, but the price that we're being given for it is having less or, or no value. At this point, wool, especially medium fleece, you know, not our, our merinos or our, our finer wool rambolets, uh, it doesn't have a use. Uh, and it's more of a byproduct of the sheep industry than it is a income-generating source for the operation. So uh, we've seen a lot of growth in the hair sheep realm. In terms of healthiest, hardiest breed of sheep, it's hard to really pin it down just because we have a very diverse environment in which we raise these animals. Out west, you know, some Targhees, some Rambouillet, Rambouillet crosses. That's what we're going to see some Columbia thrown in there. We're going to see a lot of these finer wool, uh, what we'd consider range type ewes that tend to be a little bit larger framed uh, and, and can travel to consume limited amounts of forage across uh, across that rangeland. As we move towards the east and specifically the southeast, uh, the Katahdin breed of sheep, another hair breed, has really grown in popularity. Where they have a lot of value for the southeastern producer is the ability to select for parasite resistance using estimated breeding values, similar to what we would have in, in cattle like EPDs. Uh, these are EBVs and do the same thing. It's a genetic selection tool, and we're selecting an immune system in those Katahdins that is more robust when it comes to really internal parasites, which is our biggest threat to the sheep industry. That's really the breed that's been on the rise. That's what you know. I currently raise, and it's not. I don't bring them up because I'm I'm partial to them. We could certainly look at look at some Dorsets uh, here in Ohio selling into the, what we would consider the lightweight or the hothouse market, uh, some good production dorsets will bring a premium every week at uh, a local sale barn. Is the vast majority of sheep bred through AI or not? With sheep, we have uh, difficulty with a transcervical AI procedure. And so, you know, adoption of that practice has been slow, especially in the commercial side of the industry. Uh, it's done laparoscopically, poke a hole there in the abdomen, 
insert semen directly into the uterine horn to inseminate those sheep artificially. And so obviously there's increased cost associated with that. It's hard to make it pencil in a commercial operation. That's a challenge to uniformity and in, in, in meat quality as well. I mean, you, you, it's difficult to, uh, to point back uh, sires and so forth. Correct. Yeah, when we look at the beef industry, you know, how many top bulls get bred to, to cows all across the country because of artificial insemination, whereas, you know, live cover of a, of a quality individual is limited just in uh, location, you know, geographical location, getting him transported biosecurity, and he can only breed so many ewes naturally. So it's a slower process there for sure. Currently in the industry in the East Coast, what do you see for standard herd size? And by the way, what's ideal feed for lamb? Uh, in the East, flock size tends to be quite a bit smaller than the rest of the country. And we've seen a lot of interest from new producers, you know, individuals that, that maybe want to start a homestead type operation or, or get involved in agriculture. And sheep really make a lot of sense because we have low risk uh, to the producer. You know, I'm not going to go out and get get killed by a group of ewes, uh, whereas if I buy a bunch of heifers, there's some danger, some risk involved, along with just the capital it takes to invest in in those sheep, in those small ruminants. And so that's incentive certainly for new producers to get involved in it. And when we think about the just overall life cycle of what it takes to get my money back out of that initial capital investment, the lifespan on that uh, return is much shorter than it is in cattle. We're thinking about ideal feed, certainly the ruminant animals. So I'm a big fan of having them eat as much forage that is available as possible. And we can do that with some intensive rotational grazing. Uh, We can get lambs that grow exceptionally well to get to that finishing point, or at least uh, almost like a backgrounding model, get them to a certain weight and then finish them off with some grain product, whether it be corn, soybean meal, or a, a concentrate pellet with some corn mixed in. How long does it take to get to finishing? Typically how many months? Realist, about five, six. Similar model to, to what the swine industry would be. Uh, it can take a longer time. It's how much we want to push them and, and really what that management style looks like. Um, and it, again, it, it all comes back to your endpoint. So uh, there are ethnic buyers that do not want lambs greater than 90 pounds, especially in uh, North Carolina, Virginia, a lot of buyers. And those sheep end up going into Atlanta, New York City, those cultural hubs. And to get to 90 pounds with our Katahdins is uh, a pound of gain per day. Uh, and that's the goal. I'm not saying everything hits that. Uh, we do have some some elite individuals in, in that lamb crop that uh, are doing that. And so in that model, three to four months is really what my turn from birth to where I sell at. You know, I can do it in four months. You know, there at NC State, they've got some sheep on, on some grow-safe bunks and putting in a, a total pellet, so soy hull inclusion so they don't have to feed hay. And looking at feed efficiency, those sheep are doing uh, Katahdin's and some Dorset sheep are doing over a pound a day of gain. How many pounds of feed 
per pound of gain? So we tend to assume six to one, similar to beef cattle. There's some efficient, like very efficient animals that have been you know, tested at three to one, four to one, but we kind of rule of thumb. If I'm planning on feeding some lambs, I assume that kind of five, five pound, six pound, one pound of gain. You know, I, I grew up, everybody said, well, sheep was just trying to find a place to lay down and die. I mean, the health aspect of sheep must have improved or was that related to breed or just lack of husbandry? Yeah, I think it's a an easy excuse for lack of husbandry. And I'm not denying that disease issues or uh, just like any livestock, they're a living thing. So there's always the chance for death. But it's finding the options and the opportunities for improved husbandry reduce that death loss. That's a pretty common, I'd say, misconception. You're going to have losses, and and a lot of it is you know predator-driven, internal parasite-driven, and the other aspect when we compare it to beef cattle, when we're thinking about neonates or young animals, the smaller that that animal is at birth, the greater percentage for mortality. There are ewes. There are sheep that. Uh, fit the environment and fit the production system and and excel. And those are the ones we need to select for, and those are the ones we need to keep around and call those that don't fit in our system. Uh, Husbandry's evolved to eliminate some of the problem with uh, disease by animal confinement. Do confined flocks do better with this equation? That's a good question. With confined flocks, we run into a, a lot of different problems than what we would have with with sheep that are out on pasture. You know, items like respiratory disease, increased cases of mastitis, you know, a shorter kind of lifespan because we're pushing those animals to be accelerated because we have a higher overhead. You know, we need to push those animals to, in terms of performance to exceed uh, what their counterparts are doing. So I don't know that one's necessarily better than the other in terms of you know, disease control. We can make a, a pros cons list for for both types of operations. Sure. I think I heard you say we're looking a pound of gain per day. Market weight's 150 pounds. And what is the average price that a grower receives today for a market weight sheep? Yeah, a good question. And that, that goes back to the diversity of the sheep industry. And why we don't have a lot of consistency. So here in Ohio, we've got a local sale barn, Mount Hope. Uh, they're selling quite a few sheep on a weekly basis. Those lightweight ethnic lambs, 60, 80 pounds are going for uh, the primes. The choice and primes are going for 280 to $3 plus. We expect those to increase here over the next couple of months in terms of price per pound. When we look at our more of what we'd call traditional endpoint, you know, 130 to 150, 160 pound lambs, you know, those, if we were to just take them to, to auction and sell them live weight, probably looking 175, 150 to 180 uh, in that range per pound. And so that's just a ballpark evaluation. It sounds like there's a bit of a challenge too. And, you know, you don't have the data collection that Pork, the pork industry does. You don't have the data collection, the consistent data collection that the beef industry does as well. So that's for researchers like yourself. That's a that's a challenge. It is definitely, and 
again, we're just trying to get get more sheep to bring American or take American dollars and reinvest those American dollars in into American producers, you know, that are producing American lamb. We know the consumer prefers that local product that doesn't have uh, the thousands of miles getting over here. Uh, and so we know there's value. They've shown us time and time again at retail, at farm to fork, they want a local product. They want a U.S. product. And so I feel that as an industry, we're obligated to, to try to give them that. Cameron Meyerly is the Director of Sustainability for the American Lamb Board. Interesting stuff. Jeff, hang on for just a sec. I have a question for you. You're listening to Ag and NC. Thanks in part to Ag Carolina Farm Credit, financing rural North Carolina for generations, lending solutions for farms, land, and homes personalized for you. Ag Carolina Farm Credit, giving you room to grow. Thanks in part to Donna Byram with First Choice Insurance Partners. Call Donna at 252-792-1189. Let her protect your yield so you can stay in the field. Normally, Jeff and I don't reconvene after talking with the guests, but I asked Jeff to stick around a little bit. There was some really interesting stuff, I thought, especially when our guest, Cameron Meyerly, Sustainability Director for the American Lamb Board, got to the point where 60% of the lamb consumed in this country is imported. I'm sitting here thinking about where there might be some opportunity. It needs to be explored a little bit. There may be an opportunity there. I was flabbergasted by the fact that we are net importers of lamb, and lamb, like duck, is, uh, is is a high-end treat. Other places around the world, it's not. As he touched on, the consistency issue seems to be an issue. Again, I, I think it's like anything else. He mentioned the, the breed that he likes best. It sounds like it's probably a healthy, mm-hmm. healthier breed and, and a, a good meat producer. I, again, a gain a pound a day, the feed efficiency is not good. However... Uh, he mentioned that NC State had developed a pelletized feed product that had soy hulls, and I mean, you got to have bulk for ruminant. And it sounds like you can feed this pelletized type feed, is what I'll call it, rather than hay. I don't know. He, he talked about six to one in the gain. Where, where does that rank with That's other? A lot of feed. Is it? Yeah, S three three X. If I compare a monogastric like a chicken or a pig, they are a lot more efficient than is a ruminant. I've been around my cows my whole life. There's certainly a lot on the back end. Byproduct. Yep. Thank you, sir, for the extra minute or two. Now on to the North Carolina weighted price quoted Thursday, January the 4th, for small lot sales delivered carton grade A eggs. $246.76 Two forty six seventy six for extra large, two thirty eight eighty three for large, two seventeen fifty five for medium, and one fifty four for small eggs. Due to the past two weeks holiday break, I don't have the price comparisons for the prior week on number two yellow shell corn, but the prices range mostly four fifty six to five forty one at the feed mills, four thirty six to five forty six at the elevators through Thursday, January the fourth. Number one yellow soybeans range twelve sixty eight to thirteen oh four at the processors, mostly eleven eighty two to twelve fifty four at the elevator. Number two red winter wheat range five seventy to six oh three at the elevators. And that's this week's Ag and NC. Subscribe to the longer free podcast version on Apple or Spotify, or download the IBX Media app and find it there along with all of our older programs. Well, at least the last year, but I will get some of the archives up, I promise, in the upcoming year. 
Details on how to hook up with us as well as our sponsors are on our website, agandnc.com. Thanks to Ag Carolina Farm Credit, First Choice Insurance Partners, and the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Got to be NC. Agriculture in North Carolina, copyright 2024, Interbanks Media. For Jeff Turner and myself, Dan Miller, make it a great week. 